Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we stir your brain with the swizzle stick of weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature designer chemistry, tornadoes, and the connection, if any, between music taste and intelligence. But first up, here's John August, swept away with tornadoes. Perhaps you've seen those documentaries about how tornadoes have lifted up people and deposited them some distance away. What's the science behind it? John August investigates. Tornadoes have, amongst other freak happenings, been known to pick up people and deposit them some distance away with minimal injury, which I'll focus on today. We know it happens. But what are the forces and aerodynamics involved? When air moves past an object, this develops a force. If the force upwards is rather larger than the force of gravity, it will lift the object up into the air. This force is related to how much the mass of air moving past the object slows down. This is converted into a force acting on the object. Force equals the rate of change in momentum. That's one way of looking at it. Based on estimates of how much someone weighs, the air resistance and density of air, we can calculate a figure of 300 kilometres an hour to do this. But we can link this to another physical effect, the terminal velocity of skydivers. When a skydiver is falling, they reach a maximum speed at which the force of gravity is balanced by air resistance. At this speed, they are no longer speeding up, but they are still moving towards the ground at this constant speed. Skydivers can in fact modify their speed of fall by varying their air resistance. In going from the position with the arms and eggs splayed out, which maximises air resistance, to being completely balled up, skydivers can change their speed of descent from about 200 kilometres an hour to 320 kilometres an hour, which compares well with our 300 kilometre an hour estimate. Still, we do need winds of about 250 kilometres upwards to pick up a person. While the winds of a tornado are dominated by winds along the ground uh, circulating around the tornado. Still, the winds will be turbulent, changing direction, and if they hit the ground or another obstacle, they might then be redirected upwards. Then, the person has to be picked up without hitting anything on the ground along the way. So, between the angle at which the wind is pushing them and the extra push upwards the wind develops when they approach a building, they clear any such objects. After this, they would be flung outward by the centrifugal force generated by the circular winds of the tornado. Next, in order to land without injury, The wind must drop so that the person accelerates to the ground, but not so rapidly as to cause injury. If the wind had to be 250 kilometres an hour to keep them aloft, and it dropped to 200 kilometres an hour, it would still support them to some degree, and they would accelerate gradually to the ground. If the wind stopped suddenly, you'd have an equivalent fall from that height, which could cause injury. Makes sense so far. But let's look at one recent example. In March 2006, Matt Suter in Fordland, Missouri, was grabbed by a tornado and taken through the air 1,300 feet. That's about 400 metres. The problem is, however, that what seems to be this tornado is listed as an F2 tornado on Wikipedia. F2 tornadoes have speeds of between 179 and 218 kilometres an hour. 
Our minimum limit is 200 kilometres an hour, but really we should have about 250 kilometres for some margin. For F3 tornadoes, the range is 219 to 266 kilometres, and for F4 tornadoes, 267 to 322 kilometres. F3 tornadoes will destroy whole storeys of well-constructed buildings, and F4 tornadoes will completely level well-constructed houses. Well, clearly it happened. How do we reconcile the wind speeds not being high enough? Perhaps a tornado had wind speeds of 210 kilometres an hour, and this really was sufficient to pick up Matsuta. There was enough air resistance. It could also be that while it was an F2 tornado, and while speeds are limited to 218 kilometres most of the time, winds did reach the necessary speed for a short time. Or perhaps wind speeds were magnified when either the wind suddenly made through its way through the doors, releasing built-up pressure, or because it made its way through a constriction, like when you partially plug the water coming out of a hose. Alternatively, perhaps this tornado was in fact F3 or higher in terms of its wind speed. It's just that it didn't damage anything that would mark it as such a tornado. So, some of the details remain to be worked out. But rather than just being totally mystified by such freakish events, it is possible to understand the physical principles at work behind them. I acknowledge useful email discussions with Professor Craig Burren of Pennsylvania State University, author of the book Clouds in a Glass of Beer, and also the websites Wikipedia, The Tornado Project, and The Physics Factbook. That was John August, taken up with a fascination for the winds inside a tornado. With me in the studio is Martin Ficini and Mark West. So, people being sucked up into the sky. Yeah, there's anecdotal uh, stories you ever hear every now and then of uh, someone is just walking along, minding their own business, and they get sucked up into the clouds and frozen into a big ice cube, and then they fall back down to Earth later. It's a pretty pretty crazy story, but um, it, it kind of makes you wonder when you, when you know that um, instances like when there's a tornado out over water, um, it's actually happened before that um, a whole lot of fish will start raining down from the sky. And, you know, if, if enough people see it, you kind of have to give it a bit of credence. Well, like, that goes way back to Charles Fort. Oh. Old Testament plagues, really, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is right. Um, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, there was Charles Fort in the UK who saw reports in the newspapers of fish falling from the sky on British towns. And the local boffins came out and the scientists said, fish do not fall from the sky. There are no fish in the sky, so therefore fish do not fall from the sky. So you're wrong. But people pointed to all the fish on the roofs and in the street. They said, ah, well, our hypothesis is that there was a mad fishmonger who went about spreading fish over the roofs and the road to make it look like there was a rain of fish. Mm. This was the same logic they used when they said there are no rocks in the sky, therefore rocks do not fall from the sky. Silly farmer, there is no rock that landed right in front of you in your paddock. It's tough to be a skeptic in the face of such ridiculous uh, instances where things are actually coming out of the sky and it's up to you to find a, a plausible mechanism and you're totally out of your depth. <laughs> well, absolutely. And enough people, of course, have seen fish falling from the sky that we now know that it just happens sometimes and it's probably tornadoes and water spouts and various other type phenomena. But, uh, well, that's the other thing is sometimes other things fall from the sky, either not just fish, but fish of different sizes and they're sorted so they come, all the small fish, all the medium fish, all the large fish. Nuts have fallen from the sky that have been sorted oh, as well. I love that. 
And again, it looks like it must be intelligence at work, right? The gods have come and they've so- what? They've sorted the nuts. Yeah. The- and what's happened, of course, is that they're all different weights in the air. Mm-hmm. So the longer they're in the air, the more they'll fall to their own height of similar weighted things and similar shaped things. Mm-hmm. So that when they do fall, they will all fall together, categorized as if by an intelligent hand. No, I'm, I'm going to say that there's some nut-loving god out there who's periodically raiding us down uh, with pistachios and almonds and, and alas, the Brazil nuts. Mm. As long as we're not allergic. <laughs> what better place to talk about chemistry than the pub? Mark West talks to Dr. Luke Hunter about organic chemistry and designing molecules to slip into your DNA. I'm sitting down over a cocktail with an old friend of mine, Dr. Luke Hunter. Now, Luke has a PhD in organic chemistry from Sydney University and more recently was working in St Andrews in Scotland uh, in the organic chemistry lab at their university. And we're going to talk today a little bit about organic chemistry and in particular designing molecules to slip into DNA strands. So Luke, for a bit of background, what what exactly is organic chemistry and and where does designing molecules to slip into DNA strands fit into that? Um, Organic chemistry originally, uh, the name came about because organic chemistry meant the chemistry of life. But nowadays, organic chemistry just means anything associated with carbon. So as long as your molecule's got a carbon atom in it, it's organic chemistry. Uh, And DNA is an example of an organic molecule. There's lots of carbon atoms in DNA. So I'm working on making little molecules that that like to bind to DNA. So why design molecules that slip into DNA? What's the story there? DNA is an attractive target to design molecules to bind to because um, you can imagine therapeutic benefits. So um, if you've got a mutation in your DNA and you want to silence a particular gene or something like that, maybe it would be great if you could just um, take a drug that would bind to that part of your DNA and silence it for you. The tricky bit is designing a molecule that will bind to a certain DNA sequence specifically. So if we imagine these as Lego blocks, the DNA is this famous double helix strand with with bits and pieces hanging off it. Your genes are a part of that strand of, of DNA and you want to design molecules that bind to those genes to maybe turn them on or turn them off or modify them in some way. How on earth do you do this? Well, it's a, it's a tricky a tricky question, actually. You can sit down with a, a piece of paper and you can scribble around and you can figure out what kinds of molecules might bind to DNA. So, for example, you can design molecules that like to slide in between the bases of DNA, between the rungs, and you can also design molecules that might like to slot neatly into the grooves of the DNA. And you can even, maybe if you're really clever, you can design molecules that have a part of the molecule slots into the DNA and a part of it binds in the groove. But... It's very tricky to design it rationally from scratch like that. At UNSW, I'm working on a a different technique where uh, I'm making a whole bunch of compounds and I'm hoping that just one or two of those molecules will will be uh, effective at binding to the DNA. So I'm making a, a... I've made a whole bunch of different small molecules that look like they might just bind to DNA and I've made a soup so they're all interconverting and they're all binding to each other and dissociating again. And then I'm going to go fishing with a strand of DNA and 
the the uh, the super molecules are gradually going to self-assemble around the DNA strand. So I'll be able to pull out a molecule that binds nice and tightly to the DNA without having to design it carefully myself. I love this image of you sitting there holding a strand of DNA into a soup of organic molecules, pulling it out and seeing which one's stuck. Is that that's a fair image, is it? That's pretty much exactly what I'm trying to do, exactly. Um, and the beauty is, you can go fishing with whatever piece of DNA you want. So if you know there's a, a certain DNA sequence associated with a certain disease, you can take a short stretch of DNA and go fishing with that, and then you ideally pull out a molecule that binds selectively to that piece of DNA. So uh, it's a lazy man's way of finding a molecule that binds selectively to any given DNA sequence. And how do you make the soup? A lot of people picture organic chemistry as cooking, so soup's not a bad analogy, and I always thought that organic chemistry was a bit, of, bit like cooking because I was hopeless at organic chemistry. So how do you make the soup? How, what, what's involved in that? There's various ways you can, you can make the soup, but the key thing is you have to pick a reversible chemical reaction that will enable the building blocks to stick together and then fall apart from each other again. And so there's various different chemical reactions that fall into this category. And the most commonly used one um, is disulfide chemistry. So if you start with a, a thiol, which is a slightly stinky compound with a, a sulfur group at one end, those thiols like to combine together to make a disulfide. And that's a reversible reaction. So they'll, they'll be joining together and falling apart all the time. So that's one example. And there's various other chemical reactions that are reversible as well. And what are some of the applications of this? If you find a chemical that binds to a particular part of DNA, what does this mean? What can we do? Well, I think the, 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 in the first instance, we just want to be able to silence a dodgy gene. So if you've, got a, if you've got a gene in it with a mutation that gives you a certain disease, if you could silence that gene, that's the, that's the, the first and um, most obvious application of this sort of work. Um, but you can also use this sort of work as um, diagnostics. So if you want to just do a test to see if someone's got a particular mutation, if you could throw in a molecule that binds to a certain DNA stretch and, and tells you if you've got this particular sequence or not, that could be a useful diagnostic tool as well. So you might find the cure for Parkinson's? Who knows? I think that's, uh, uh, that's probably going to be someone else following me, but I'm... I'm, I'm involved in the, the basic research and the idea is that it might hopefully set the foundation for all sorts of other discoveries following. I guess most people that think about organic chemists picture this Hollywood style lifestyle. What, uh, what's your day-to-day -day job entail? Well, uh, I, um, I hate to say that it's not quite as glamorous as that. I, I do have a very nice lab with nice, uh, uh, nice views, but day to day I, um, I'm wearing a white coat and safety glasses and I'm mixing together different compounds in round bottom flasks and spending a lot of time wrestling with machines like NMR machines and HPLCs to work out what compounds I've made in the round bottom flasks. So it's not especially glam glamorous, but uh, I quite enjoy it anyway. And what about your work in Scotland? What took you to Scotland and uh, what was all that about? I was actually working on something totally different in Scotland. Uh, I, was, I, I got a, um, a fast introduction to fluorine chemistry, uh, which is something quite different to what I'd done before. And um, my boss in Scotland is interested in making long alkane molecules, which are long carbon chains, and seeing what happens if you put fluorine atoms on each carbon. So if you go along the chain, you've just got one fluorine atom on each carbon. And 
these types of molecules are surprisingly difficult to make, especially if you want to control precisely the way in which all the fluorine atoms are pointing. Depending on how you align the fluorines with each other, it makes the carbon chain curl up into different shapes. Um, we've found that just by using four fluorines in a row, you can either have a, a straight line, or you can have a V-shaped molecule, or you can even have a spiral-shaped molecule. So basically, over in Scotland, I was just playing around with these little molecules and working out what shapes we could make. What good does it do us to know what sort of shapes that we can make out of fluorine alkanes? I guess on your grant applications, you have to write down uh, uses and uh, applications of your uh, chemistry. But uh, to be honest, I was really just playing around and, and enjoying making these different shapes. But um, you might be able to imagine a few applications, I guess. I mean, if you can control a molecule's shape, uh, that's a pretty powerful thing. For example, if you want to uh, make a drug molecule, it's got to be in just the right shape to fit its receptor. So controlling a shape is very important. You can also imagine applications in materials science as well. So uh, one thing I was looking at more recently was liquid crystals. If you want to make a, a good liquid crystal, it's got to be in just the right shape with a, a dipole in just the right orientation. And so using fluorines is a good way to make sure the molecule's got just the shape that you want it to have. Because fluorine's very small and very electronegative, so it becomes quite negative. I guess it repels other fluorines, so it's easy to design with fluorine. Is that, is that right? Yeah, you should have been an organic chemist yourself, Mark. That's very impressive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fluorine is very small. It's the smallest element after hydrogen. And it's very electronegative, which means it sucks electrons towards itself very tightly. And so when you join a fluorine onto a carbon, the bond is very polar. So most of the electrons uh, in, the, in the bond are sitting around the fluorine atom. So the fluorine's got a partial negative charge. And this has all kinds of effects on the rest of the molecule. And so, yeah, so for example, uh, fluorines, that are, fluorines like to be close to each other, but not too close. And you can predict the way that they like to line up with each other. And that's, how, that's the key to working out how these molecules I've been making like to fold up. I'm just casting my mind back now. Fluorine's one above chlorine in the uh, periodic table. And everyone's heard of hydrochloric acid, but hydrofluoric acid is the most acidic acid there is out there, the most dangerous, is that right? I'm not sure if it's the most acidic, but it's certainly dangerous. If you want to handle neat hydrofluoric acid, you have to use all kinds of specialised equipment, Teflon-coated reaction vials, that sort of thing. Um, even when you're using a dilute like I was, it's still uh, fairly exciting because you have to carry the hydrofluoric acid antidote next to you at all times. There's a, um, a calcium gluconate gel, and if you accidentally spill some hydrofluoric acid on yourself, you have to reach for the antidote and smear it on yourself as quick as you can. So that was a bit of excitement. That's cool. Wow. So you really do live the Hollywood lifestyle. That's right. I, uh, I used to get home and impress my housemates with all the, uh, all the stories of heroism in the lab. That was Mark West speaking to Luke Hunter whilst consuming organic molecules in the pub. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Now for Correlation of the Week. Mark West investigates whether there's a connection between your intelligence and your taste in music. And now it's time for a segment we haven't had for a little while, and that's a Correlation of the Week, or as we like to call it, Correlation of the Week.
And this week, the award goes to the recent work that's been done in correlating intelligence and music preference. And I must admit, it's something that I've thought of before. The other day, I heard loud, distorted music approaching from a hotted-up 1986 Holden Calais with mag wheels and ridiculously loud subwoofer, and I thought to myself, I wonder what this guy's compensating for. But I also thought, his music taste probably says a lot about his intelligence. And as I heard the loud beat go past me, I thought to myself, I really must look that up when I get home. And that study has actually been done. Now, before we jump into it, it's worth saying that the author of this study, Virgil Griffith from California Tech, makes no claims about correlation equaling causation in this case. He just presents his results and allows us to draw our own conclusions. His method of correlating music and intelligence involved, one, find the 10 most frequent favorite music descriptions at every U.S. college via that college's network statistics page on Facebook. 2. Download the average SAT score from a college board for students attending that college. And 3. Correlate the Facebook music results with SAT results and draw your own conclusions on music taste and intelligence. Oh man, it's like, I don't even know how to introduce this. (laughs) This is crazy right here. The artist associated with the highest intelligence, by a clear margin, is Beethoven. Whilst some rapper by the name of Lil Wayne seems to be favoured by those less blessed in their mental faculties. Remember when you heard it first! The study also showed that Counting Crows, Sufjan Stevens, Radiohead and Benfolds 5 appealed to the big brains, whilst very disappointingly, for me anyway, Beyonce is at the other end of the scale. According to the data, people who listen to indie music are the smartest, followed by techno, classic rock and country. Whilst at the other end of the field, we've got soccer, gospel, hip-hop and quite surprisingly jazz. It's tempting to think that intelligence has direct impact on music choice, but this is probably not true. I know plenty of research scientists into Britney Spears. And the reverse, that music choice influences your intelligence, doesn't make much sense either. Even though you may be occasionally tempted to think that listening to mindless dance music makes you stupid. Could there be some drivers that influence both intelligence and music choice? Possibly. You can imagine that socioeconomic factors and what you are exposed to whilst growing up would influence the music that you like and how well you do at school. Your parents would be a big influence too. There are countless possibilities that are best mulled over at the pub. Griffith's study on music and intelligence comes hot on the heels of his Books and Intelligence study, in which he correlates book tastes with intelligence, again using Facebook data. Harry Potter is the most popular book, with the Bible second. For some reason, the Bible and the Holy Bible are actually different books. Some of the results include Lolita is the smartest book, the Zane series of books are the dumbest, Check them out if you haven't seen them. They're very funny and really quite erotic. The smartest religious book is the Book of Mormon, whilst the dumbest religious book is the Holy Bible. The dumbest philosophy book is The Five People You Meet in Heaven, with the smartest philosophy book, Atlas Shrugged. For more on the book study, check out booksthatmakeyoudumb.virgil.com.
www.musicthatmakesyoudumb.gr. And for more on the music study, see musicthatmakesyoudumb.virgil.gr. So congratulations, Virgil Griffith. Your beautiful study has won you... Correlation of the Week. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or you feel like a chat, if you'd just like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program where John August, Martin Ficini and Mark West. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.